And we are live with Robin Lake, the amazing Robin Lake from Seattle, director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education for those folks that actually do want to reinvent public education. Robin is also known to be one of the people in education policy, commentary, whatever you want to call it, who is level-headed, doesn't get too crazy in any direction, which kind of drives me nuts. Um, just smart, level-headed, thinks things through, you know, all those characteristics that uh, that I wish to have one day. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Christopher, it's so nice to see you and hear you. Well, I actually um, talked to you not long ago, but it's been probably a few weeks now when everything was new about shutting down schools and kids going home. I was really worried at that time, and and um, it was good to talk to you then because you had insight into what does equity actually mean when you're shutting down schools because I had a couple of examples that seemed bananas to me about what it doesn't mean. And one of those examples clearly was either we're going to give online um, access to kids for everybody or we're going to give it to nobody. <laughs> so we yeah. had school districts that were um, figuring out that they may not be able to reach every single kid, especially special education kids. So the decision was made to not give instruction to anybody online. Where are we in that problem now? Are we still having that problem? So can I just say first that um, hasn't that always been the case that we've we've not been able to give everybody access to all the same things? This is what's mm -hmm. So I mean, um, you know, uh, my work is all around equitable outcomes for kids, but we've never given them equitable inputs in terms of quality teachers or, you know, access to technology and things. And so in the middle of a pandemic, it struck me as a little odd to say we can't do anything now because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we have all these all these systems in place. Um, and so, you know, where are we now? Um, well, a number of districts said um, early on, and one was in Washington State. I wrote about North Shore School District, who said that's a that's a ridiculous choice. It's a ridiculous dichotomy. That's old thinking. Actually, we need to do as much as we can for every kid, and we need to just start moving forward and solving problems. And more and more, as we've been tracking districts at my organization, uh, we're seeing more districts coming online. Some because states finally finally said to them, "Hey, um, this we're going to be in this for the long haul. You need to get mm -hmm. you know, on things." And so, um, you know, districts are are trying now. Unfortunately, they're for the most part on the back of their heels because they waited so long, sort of you know, with this. Um, you know, equity frame in mind um, that they didn't really have a plan in place. So it's, um, you know, the the situation is, of course, that those that did have a plan in place tended to be private schools, um, suburban schools, and mm -hmm. and you know, increasingly we're seeing a lot of charter schools that were marching forward, and the big urbans, um, you know, uh, were sort of. Um, you know, stuck in this mindset of how are we going to solve these very, very hard problems? I just want to say these are very, very hard problems. So I don't mm -hmm. want to you're not making light of the fact that it's it's not easy. But, it's not easy. It's not you know. easy. But we've seen some incredibly creative approaches. So Atlanta mm -hmm. schools went out and partnered with T-Mobile and was like, I'm, we're going to get hotspots to every kid. And, you know, just that mentality of jumping in and solving problems as fast as you can um, has been the silver lining for me. It's just seeing how educators really can rise to the challenge if you give them the opportunity. Yeah, here's the rub, though. I mean, if you think about it, you just mentioned private schools, charter schools. Um, in some cases, virtual and online schools were the ones that were able to be nimble to quickly think through something and just do it. It's kind of like the basis of what education reform is supposed to be about in the first place. So can you see how that might be scary for people that run institutional schools, traditional schools? Yeah, I mean, it's scary. It's also um, a real difference in the amount of flexibility uh, that is built into the system. And, you know, big urban systems have, you know, 
<clears throat> a lot of rules and regulations that they've been told that they, they have to follow for, you know, again, like really good intent. But when it comes to acting quickly and in the case, so one of the districts that was really out front was Miami-Dade in Florida. Mm -hmm. And those guys, it's a big urban um, and um, they had uh, a lot of pieces in place that made it possible for them to to jump. One was they had a lot of digital learning going. Um, part of that's mandated by the state. Um, they have a lot of partnerships with digital providers, so they were kind of used to that world. They had emergency plans in place because of hurricanes. Mm -hmm. you know, they were used mm -hmm. to getting ready to you know, move into a different system and into that mode. And Miami-Dade has always approached things from a degree of innovation, sort of, you know, saying to schools, you've got to offer choices and, and, you know, different opportunities to families as they're needed. So I, you know, I just want to say, I, th I think it is quite possible. And um, uh, many of the big urbans actually are, are showing, you know, a lot of really interesting flexibility and opportunity right now. When they are doing things that are not... You know, when they are doing things that are not equitable, it's usually not because they're bad people. It's often because they claim some sort of federal law or guidance or a thing that they might be out of compliance with if they don't do, you know, plan A versus plan B. For instance, you know, not giving everybody online instruction. The idea behind that was that the federal government could come down on them if they weren't giving it, you know, if they weren't meeting the needs of special education kids through technology. So that was kind of the reasoning, right? Uh, to yeah. just give it to no one. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, especially of this crisis, um, many districts, not just urbans, but suburbans, rurals, um, were, were really concerned about going up against federal and state guidance. And so that's something that um, folks had to clarify and, you know, um, just out of necessity, we had, we, you know, when it was, we were looking at two weeks of closure, it was, it was one thing, but when we were looking at two months or longer, um, guidance had to be clarified. So that's happened. I mean, the, the feds mm -hmm. came out and said, um, on, going online is, you know, is a necessity and, um, and, especially around special education, um, IDEA, mm -hmm. um, move forward. And that shouldn't be a reason for, uh, for stopping. The other thing though, that folks are worried about is lawsuits from families who are not being well served and, um, you know, um, for good reason, um, things are crazy. And even with the best intentions, even with the best plans in place, some kids are not going to get the, the things that they have um, written into their IEPs, the things that they're entitled to. Mm -hmm. You know, even with sort of doing the best you can is always going to, um, in a crisis, leave some kids behind. And so working through that has been a really difficult process. And again, a lot of innovation, but a lot of real barriers that, that folks are facing. That, that feels really a lot like... Uh, the type of equity challenge that's exposed by a crisis, by something right now. And, you know, you think about the president having to give briefings on the curve, which if we are being honest, the curve means people dying, like the number of people dying. And someone asked, well, what's an acceptable number of people dying? And of course, the number is zero. Well, in education, it's like, what's the acceptable number? We know some kids are going to be left behind. What's the acceptable number of kids that are going to be left behind? And of course, the answer is none. Um, so there goes your conundrum, your equity challenge, because almost anything you do is going to leave some kids out, right? Yeah, but I, the thing is, um, I think that's a, it's a it's an apt analogy to grapple with, and it's one that shouldn't define us. And here's mm -hmm. why. The kids are not going to die unless we we let them. Um, they will they will have some will have temporary setbacks. So, for example, kids with significant disabilities who just absolutely cannot be served appropriately, except by you know somebody having somebody right next to them. Mm -hmm. um, 
we can, you know, we can compensatory education, um, you know, is designed for the purpose of making up hours and services that were lost at some period. So we commit to that now and make plans for that and, and say, you know, in this moment, we can't do what we can for this student. But mm-hmm. we're going to make it up to this kid because that's his or her right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there are, you know, not just in special education, but there are kids who are falling through the cracks right now. There are kids who urban school districts, they don't know, and suburban rural districts actually, don't know where these kids are right now at this moment. They're not showing up for class if class is being offered. And, you know, we're going to have to just like, pull every resource we've got to track these kids down, get them back in the system and get them back up to speed as soon as possible. So I, I just won't accept the all or nothing um, frame. I mean, we've got to, we've got to go for zero and, you know, I'm sure we won't get there. We never have been at zero, (laughs) but um, you know, this is where resolve comes in and um, uh, working together and, and, resolute problem solving you know one of the um one of the selling points for many of the virtual ways of learning and the in reform has been that it's more efficient and it's less expensive everything that you just said sounds to me like more money like more resources it's kind of the opposite of what's normally the the rub on on reform do you think that what you just called for these, you know, expanding the ways that we do things is really going to take more resources and re- more money from states and from the feds? It's going to be um, a massive challenge next year when kids come back to school um, in whatever form school takes. Uh, you know, just to, just to um, clarify, when you say next year, do you mean in the fall or do you mean 2021? I mean in the fall, but probably. Okay, you're thinking about the fall. Okay. Probably, you know, probably we're going to be dealing with the aftermath of this for several years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to have um, kids coming in with a lot of lost learning time. All of the estimates that I've seen are, you know, putting you know, from, you know, three months to six months of lost learning time, math or reading. And uh, so catching them up usually requires kind of one-on-one tutoring, very cost-intensive strategies. And this is all going to come at a time when state budgets are maybe going to fall by 20, 25%. Um, uh, We're going to have less money. We're going to have much more intensive needs. We're going to have kids who have endured incredible trauma. Uh, Think of how many will have lost a family member or, you know, somebody they know, Mm -hmm. you know, the needs stack up and the money diminishes. Uh, We don't have any choice, but I hate to use the word innovate. I mean, really, we're going to have to um, find solutions that nobody has thought of yet. I mean, Robin, that doesn't sound reasonable. It doesn't sound doable. I mean, like in good times, innovation for the mass education system is a challenge to get people to think beyond their kind of paleo concerns and ways of doing things is a problem in regular times, in normal times. So now we have a massive crisis. I don't know how many kids it is. Is it 3 million it's more than three. It's 30, 50, it's 50 million kids. Yeah. It's 30 million. It's something like that. Tens of millions of kids yeah. at home. Innovate sounds great. <laughs> if the, if the innovation gene was embedded in the system anywhere, are you hopeful or do you, do you, yeah. hopeful is the wrong word. Are you optimistic that that's going to uh, happen? I, mean, I, just, I just don't, um, we don't have a choice if we want, if we're serious about equity, if we, if we're serious about, you know, um, uh, serving kids and avoiding the fallout from having kids lose, you know, maybe an entire year of their K-12 education and the economic costs that come with that, we don't have any choice but to figure out a new path. What gives me hope, honestly, is I have been sitting in on some of these teacher-to-teacher innovation forums that are going on Facebook pages and stuff, and man, 
teachers are just, they are just grooving on the challenge of figuring out how to serve kids differently and just mm -hmm. firing around, you know, I've got this challenge, who's got a solution for that? Um, that really does give me hope. Um, we, you know, we've always known our educators were capable of it. We just never really unleashed them toward problem solving. So, so yeah, I am hopeful and, um, and yet, it's incredibly sobering um, hmm. and we're going to have, we're going to have, you know, real um, choices to make and issues, you know, we're going to, we're going to have fights, um, you know, um, parents are probably um, going to feel in a profound sense of relief to mm -hmm. be able to send their kids back to school and probably also have had some lights go off while their kids are at home, sort of wondering, well, a fourth grade packet came home, but my kid wasn't able to do it at all. Why is that? Yeah. Um, or, you know, they were bored out of their mind when the fourth grade packet came home. So I, um, I think the conversations will be real. Um, I hope that we can figure out some way to set aside some of the old turf battles and the old, you know, barriers. <laughs> oh, Robin, we can dream. <laughs> <laughs> we can dream. But what I'm seeing actually just in the resistance, the systemic resistance to um, innovation manifests itself in this way. You already have a narrative that's brewing amongst the establishment. Um, parents, you're not sufficient. Oh, aren't you aren't you crazed that your kids are home? Don't you love us now? Don't you wish we could get back to school just the way that it was? Don't be so enamored with that online stuff because it's not working out for you, is it? It's like it's almost like a wishing that you don't do well. Um, and just because of that narrative, it gives me it doesn't give me hope that there's even the spirit of wanting to to have families have a good experience right now. Like there's yeah. almost a sense of wanting us to fail in a way. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I guess one thing that I've realized in this um, in all of this craziness and with the stakes so incredibly high is that there's um, there's there's a, a clarity to um, to looking for where the new path is. Um, mm -hmm. And I can only say, like, what you just described is a real narrative that some folks are pushing. And um, there are educators throughout systems um, that don't believe that, um, that really mm -hmm. have. I mean, we, we talked to one superintendent who said, you know, this is a swift kick in the behind to finally start to innovate. And, you know, we're seeing something real here. And I'll also say that there is something to the narrative that you just described. Parents are realizing when their kids are at home, Jesus, this, this educating thing is, is really hard. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate my teacher right now. And I really appreciate being able to send my kid off to school for eight hours so yeah. I can get some work done. So, you know, uh, we're going to, um, yeah, there are going to be um, fights to be had, and it's going to be incumbent on on all of us to try to look beneath the surface for a path. I feel more um, comforted that my kids are at home, actually, than being at school. So my experience has been different than others in that um, I actually like this better. Um, there were all kinds of social things that my kids were absorbing that I didn't even know about. So one of my revelations in having my kids home every day is a change in their behavior, their attitudes, the, um, you know, everybody always talks about how much recess and play kids should have while well, I'm watching my kids have good days, um, eat when they want to eat, mm -hmm. learn when they want to learn, mm -hmm. have some time to just decompress when they have anxiety. I'm also watching though, in some ways that the district do things and even do the, the online learning thing in an old way. So I have one that's being overloaded with work, like mm -hmm. doing more work than if he was actually going to school and it's stressing him out. Um, we have a couple of people here who are the friends of the show and they have a couple of comments. Matthew Nielsen says that Florida virtual school will be ready 
for up to 2.7 million kids very soon. That is a lot of wow. kids. Wow. Um, Tamika Henry says, these are not easy times, but it's an opportunity for more collaborations with community organizations, the business community who support digital learning. I hope that we can keep this same energy moving forward. And Tilly Elverum says that districts are encountering issues because they continue to try to reinvent the wheel when they could be partnering with those with experience delivering online education to at-risk and special needs populations. I think I've heard Tilly, uh, Tilly talk before about um, the fact that we're not seizing, districts are not always seizing on the opportunities to work with people that already have virtual learning, have already been doing it and have expertise and can be helpful. Is that what you're seeing or, or um, would you say it's just kind of mixed? You know, bits and starts. To be honest, you know, I've been on a lot of um, phone calls, webinars and stuff with district folks and they really want to find solutions, you know, really. Um, they, they want them. They're looking around. They're trying to figure out. Um, we don't really have good systems in place to make it easy for them. And so, you know, that's a problem. And, um, and all of us, I think, are just putting our heads down and trying to survive right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are definitely solutions out there, and we need to do a better job of getting them to the people who are trying to solve the problems today. Um, we need to um, make sure that um, that all systems, charters, whatever, are um, are constantly kind of being pushed to think about how they can do better and use the best solutions that are out there. Um, you know, but it's tricky because. I did a study with uh, Mathematica and Credo many years ago uh, on uh, online charter schools. The results were really poor. Um, the results were, were kind of terrible. I mean, and is that fair, though? Like, I wonder about that. I, I, I hadn't thought about I remember this study. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, I'm for all forms of school choice. I, I believe that all schools serve somebody. And even when they look bad on paper, somebody there's a reason that some people are still choosing, you know, that school. I wondered about the bad results in those schools that everybody like trumpeted and ran with because of it's a bias sample. Yeah. Right. Like, like I would actually want to study it now when you have more kids that are high performing now, out yeah. of the system. Now, now yeah. learning will online results suddenly become better because you have you don't have a bias sample anymore. I know in Minnesota, the majority of people before that were doing virtual learning were kids that were being dropped out of the normal system or were medically fragile or had some reason for having to stay home. Yeah. That wasn't a mainstream reason. So of course, if you look at the results, it's not really comparing apples to apples, but do you think we'll learn something different now? I guess this is my long way yeah, of thing, you know. Study, of course, we were aware of the um, the selection issues, <laughs> um, and we did our level best to try to um, to deal with them. We looked at you know every type of measure we could to try to take those issues into account. That these are these kids were different; they were coming to online learning for some particular reason, usually, mm -hmm. uh, and still um, and still the results were not not good. Um, but that um, uh, one. There's no perfect method for, for figuring that out. So it's possible that we missed something, even though we looked up, down, and sideways. But I think to your point, um, the exciting thing right now is to look at very different approaches. And you know, not only um, students who haven't um, who have been kind of you know high achievers and um, are just going into the online mode, but really some of you know our, our most effective teachers using the online platform in different ways and so the the opportunities are huge to learn about how how online word learning can work and mm -hmm. i always felt like that's that's the right question to ask not whether it's working today but how it can work because we know some kids always need that option and then in times of crisis we apparently all need that option well it seems like What's being said right now is that the kids that are doing the best are the high performers, right? And so, so meaning in some ways it is actually working for private school kids, kids that may be digital natives, for instance, you know, like the, the technology is not new to them or whatever. I don't know this to be true, but um, 
I, I mean, I'm finding yeah. that, you know, just anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of different things from different kids. Some uh, incredibly high achieving kids just absolutely hate it. Just hate mm -hmm. it. You know, mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. one person. Some absolutely love it. You know, introverts who just love, you know, the structure and the distance. I'm <laughs> really comfortable with that. So, I mean, you know, uh, as always, different kids like and need different things. So, Let's, you know, let's keep plugging away at, you know, making all the options better. But they lag in grading and attendance. Tell me what's important here. Um, um, I'm worried about a lost year is really what I'm worried about. So tell me what's important here. I'm worried about a lost year. Um, so um, the chart that we're looking at is kind of complicated, uh, but what it's showing is three different snapshots in time. So the blue, the green, and the orange were three different weeks that we looked at as we tracked district plans to go online. So we went to websites and we, you know, just, analyzed what um, what districts said they were doing. Um, and um, over on the left are districts who um, really weren't providing anything. Um, they Their websites um, either were silent about online learning or they just, you know, sort of had closed down with no path forward. So, you know, good news is everybody's moving forward to some degree now, pretty much everybody. Um, and then as we move slowly toward the right, it's just increasingly um, uh, increasing uh, resources and instruction. Um, so the... Um, uh, the next set of columns next to the sort of uh, we're doing nothing folks are folks who are putting things, resources up on the web for families like Khan Academy um, and kind mm -hmm. of all this kind of the, um, you know, here's some resources, good luck category. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The next category over is a much more formal kind of structure to curriculum. Like, you know, fourth graders, you should be doing this thing. But the onus is really still on families there. And you, that's where most of the most of the districts are. Um, and then the next two um, buckets to the right are um, those that are um, offering up um, some kind of um, instruction. You know, usually teachers are posting videos or providing some um, structured materials, um, checking in with kids, etc. And um, the ones that are, you know, farthest on the right are those that are really monitoring progress of kids, taking attendance, grading, um, you know, um, checking in with families. Um, some some school systems are really aggressive on that front. So it's a real spectrum, and um, you know, it's a so, so all the way to the right here yep. are the districts that really are kind of firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. are coming as close to regular instruction as they can. And there's like incredible growth between March, um, late March and early April in the number of districts that are hitting on all cylinders. Yeah, it was sort of an after spring break dynamic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And back and said, okay, we're ready to go. And you know, I think that what happened for a lot of school districts was they closed down thinking it was gonna be a two, a two week deal. And pretty soon it was clear it might be through the end of the year and they needed to really get plans in place. And many of them you know, did have to take a couple weeks to really plan this out. Um, much time was spent on basics like food delivery to families. That's essential, right? Um, mm -hmm. Time really well spent um, getting uh, connectivity to as many kids as possible, devices and hotspots. So a lot of that early time was spent on that front, not on learning per se. We're seeing more and more attention going to learning. 
we're starting to um, look forward now. So we're continuing to update our database every week. And now we're looking toward what are the plans for summer? We're gonna be looking to what are the plans for reopening schools, all that. Heather um, Harding says a lost semester is a better frame, I think in reference to me saying, you know, I'm worried about a lost year. Um, Heather, if you want to put in the comments anything more on your thought about that, but what do you think? Um, I asked you earlier if you thought kids were going back to school in, in the fall and if really what we're looking at is a, um, you know, uh, maybe a summer of needing to do a little bit of work and then kids get back to school. I heard Bill Gates say that he thought the kids are back in school in the fall, but when I, yeah, he said that. And, and I thought to myself, well, everything I'm hearing from the scientists doesn't seem to say that we'll be done with like the second wave of this yeah. when we do let some kids back in. So last night yeah. I was looking at um, what other countries are doing on this front and uh, Estonia, for example, who knew Estonia is, um, is really making thoughtful plans for reopening schools. I will say that when folks are talking about reopening school, it's not school as we knew it. They're talking in Estonia, at least, about groups of kids no more than 10 to a, a particular space. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think we'll probably have to anticipate that kids will be wearing masks. Um, maybe temperatures will be taken. Uh, remember, there will be a lot of teachers who are at risk um, uh, until, we, until we have a vaccine, older teachers, teachers with health conditions who can't be in the classrooms. And so uh, you know, even if schools reopen in September, which mm -hmm. they very well may, hopefully they will, mm -hmm. um, it's not going to look like regular school. And so I agree with Heather that, you know, we should think right now about a last semester. Those are where the estimates from NWEA and others are starting to place what kind of lost learning we're looking at from this year. Mm -hmm. But I'm worried that um, the compounding effect next year, if we don't get on top of it, will be pretty disastrous for a lot of kids. And, you know, I, um, I was asking some economists about what they think the economic impact of all this is. And it's pretty profound. Like, think of all the kids who if we don't um, really remediate in an aggressive way and get kids back on track and they have to spend either an extra year in K-12 or they graduate without the skills they need in uh, an economy that's pretty trashed right now, um, job prospects and the effect on GDP even are pretty um, staggering if you look out into the future. Well, you know, one of the things that has been uh, worrying me is the is the lack of assessment, the push and, and motivations to say we're going to give everybody an A or grades don't matter anymore or we're not going to assess the way that we normally assess. And it's not just because I'm some, you know, supporter of tests or whatever. I mean, I do support assessments, but it's that's not the reason. The reason to me, it does seem like an equity catastrophe. If you were already three grade levels behind and we barely knew that, and now you're not being, you're, your attendance isn't being taken. 15,000 kids in one district aren't even accounted for. We're not testing. We don't know where you are. The only thing I can see working is things like the Summit Learning uh, Platform, where as you work, you're, they're keeping your progress. Like you can see what the progress is as, as you work. But for traditional districts who don't have kids in school, and they're not going to be grading or testing, yeah, testing I mean, is huge. And um, all right, there's a, a really important analogy here to the medical situation that we're in. It's, mm. it's going to be all about testing in a way. Um, but it's a different kind of testing, I think, that we're looking at. We're looking at the need for diagnostic testing, which maybe we always should have been looking at. Um, but, you know, I think when kids break that down a little bit, Robin. So when you say that, do you mean it, we should be really shifting the focus from summative to formative, um, testing or assessments? So yeah. it shouldn't be so much about achievement tests. It should be more about summative or I'm sorry, not summative, formative tests that just let us know where kids are in the spectrum without worrying about the summative stuff. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. Kids are coming back. Um, we will have no idea how much learning an individual kid has lost mm -hmm. right, 
period. Mm -hmm. Was their parent able to work with them at all or not at all? <laughs> like, you know, kids will be coming in with all these varied levels and a traditional state test that was designed to take a snapshot in time um, looking at the school and whether the school's average kid moved forward is going to be pretty much meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. So we're going to have to play with the tests that we have. But ideally, states will be looking at right now when they're having conversations with vendors about tests that can be much more fine grained and be able to act like a medical um, kind of uh, intake evaluation to say, this is where this child is. Um, this is the kind of treatment essentially that they need over the next six months to be um, able to progress to the next level. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, some of our schools here in Minnesota uh, do that normally. Like they spend the first two weeks actually doing diagnostic tests on the kid. So your first two weeks in school in some of the districts here in Minnesota, that's what you're doing. Seems like you might have to do that in the fall for a lot more people. Like you yeah. might have to expand that kind of testing. I have a countercultural idea. I have a, you know, in listening to you. Diagnostics, I think, you know, I will just keep saying, I think we're also going to have to do a serious assessment of where the kid is in terms of emotional health and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where partnerships are going to have to come in because schools are not going to be able to handle this. Um, we're going to have to get serious about, about partnerships. Which in that case is, that's a call we're going to have to get serious about resources and money. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, those are things we have to like resource to actually do them well. And I um, get really strategic about money. I want to circle back to something that you said, you know, so, so let's say kids go to school in, in the fall and it's not going to look the way that it had looked before. I saw pictures. It wasn't, I don't know if it was Estonia, like you were talking about, but it definitely was somewhere else in the world where the kids were sitting in desks really far from each other, which meant they had a really smaller class size, right? It's going to require more staff. Um, but economically speaking, lots of families have to get back in school so that they can work and that they can have a job. But what would you think if someone proposed the idea that those parents that could keep their kids at home should? And that when the schools reopen, it should be for the kids that need it most. It should not be for middle class people. Yeah. I mean, there, there's equity problems with that. That's an equity pitch that might be also an equity problem, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I did propose that um, back when schools were starting to close here in Washington State. I proposed, well, maybe they, they you know, the kids, kids who can go home right now and kids who can't stay right now. Um, I got a lot of pushback from people about mm. that um, on the equity concerns. Um, and it was all theoretical back then. Now it's very real. And, uh, you know, was looking at what Estonia is doing. They're doing exactly that. So they're saying um, priority is going to, for coming back into the classroom, um, is going to go to kids with special needs, kids who really struggled with the virtual setting for whatever reason. Um, attention issues, maybe, or, you know, whatever, uh, just a jumpy kid, maybe, mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you need that extra support. So, um, and then uh, kids whose families have significant health risks, um, you know, shouldn't have to come in. And the other kids, you know, sort of uh, working things out on a case-by-case -case basis, um, some families may love this kind of situation, may love um, keeping their kids home. Uh, Estonia is proposing that those families then just get extra support from the teachers about, you know, how to keep their kids moving along while they're at home. I just think, you know, we're, we have to be fundamentally pragmatic about this. Um, there is no way we're going to have every kid in the classroom next year at the same time. I just don't see mm -hmm. that happening. So we're going to have to play with lots of different options. I've heard proposed that um, we might use um, unused buildings that have been surplus mm. due to closures or whatever um, for this purpose. Um, maybe, you know, um, city owned buildings to spread kids, kids out 
more. You know, I think actually, you know, on that point, one of the um, big secrets of big districts, of course, of urban districts is underutilization of facilities. I think, you know, they get real clever about filling every classroom with like mops and brooms and stuff so that it looks like they're full. But in actuality, if we're being real, one of the big problems that districts have is that they're carrying uh, underutilized buildings. So if it was about spreading kids out, they might have to do some unpopular rezoning of where yeah. kids go to and school, you know, district to district. And, and here I would just make a plea for um, states to have coherent plans. So this is not, you know, a fight over resources like we've seen in the mm -hmm. um, side. We've got to figure out a way for states to have a coherent plan that says, you know, we're going to share resources between districts if needed. Um, you know, laptops, devices, if somebody's got extras, they should be shipping them over to somebody who needs them. Um, we just need that kind of coordinated plan. I think governors and state chiefs are going to have to um, think about it strategically and, and, um, and insist that districts get back to learning as soon as possible. I'm scared to death by everything you propose, Robin. <laughs> You're so optimistic and I'm scared to death because of this, because in normal times, governors and districts um, working together um, is not always the easiest thing to make happen. And so in supposed wartime or crisis time, like we're in right now, it seems like that's twice as hard. The one thing, you know, Dr. Fuller said yesterday when he was on, on the show, he, he kind of cringes when he hears people say that this event has made us all see the inequities that we had never seen before. And he's kind of like, damn it, how did you not, not see all the inequities that were there before? Yeah. You know, why did it take this for you to, to see it? But um, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, I see some ways in which we would be learning new things about what you just said requires us to be fair about how we distribute money, for instance, how we distribute opportunity and things between districts at a state level, not at a district level. You yeah. said state and governor. And one of the gross inequities of public education has been um, intrastate and interstate, but also intradistrict and interdistrict, right, right? It's not one or the other, but between districts, the equity problems in a state are huge. Um, and I just wonder, you know, what type of really great leadership it would take to marshal all of your legislators and all of your districts, your superintendents in a state and say, we're going we're gonna to do this thing right. Yeah, really great leadership. I mean, unfortunately, that's where we have to pin our hopes, um, which is not, <laughs> not <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of people have risen to the occasion, right? In crisis, mm -hmm. who steps up? There are a lot of incredible governors who have stepped up and said, you know, um, hey, we're going to make this work. We're going to figure out how to do it. Um, a lot of state chiefs. So, um, we're going to have to look for those folks. Um, a lot of amazing superintendents. Um, uh, so uh, we're going to have to look, look for those folks, figure out how to lift them up, um, give them platforms and um, hear what they have to say, hear what they're proposing and give them space to lead. You know, um, when we talk about school districts, I think oftentimes what we're thinking about, we're thinking about school districts at least 20,000 or more, you know, 20, 30,000 up to like big districts like Chicago and, and Los Angeles and whatever. The average school district is like 3,000 kids. Do you think that all of this that we're talking about is actually easier for most districts because they're small and most districts are not a ton of kids or is it harder for them because they have fewer resources? It's both easier and harder. <laughs> um, uh, so the smaller districts um, have strong relationships. And one of the things that I've seen go a long way for families who have kids with disabilities is goodwill and relationship building and reaching out to say, yeah, we're, we can't do this the usual way, but we want to work with you. We want to really hear you. Um, we want to have an IEP meeting online right away and get down to it. Um, those districts that had strong relationships before are in a much better place to pull that off. So mm -hmm. I think that those small districts um, are really cruising um, through problems on that front. Um, but then they have other problems. So, you know, they, um, 
they don't have the um, economies of scale and they don't, you know, there are, there are other issues that they, um, uh, they don't have to work through. Yeah. It seems uh, like special education would be tough for them. They don't have as many special yeah. education resources. Yeah. Special it's hard. So, and then, um, you know, uh, rural districts, um, I've heard from friends in rural districts that their kids are so spread out. They're, they're really struggling to, to mm. find them. Um, they just don't know where they, where they are, if they're still in the district even. So there are some unique challenges, but I, you know, we've been tracking rural districts for a long time and have been very impressed with their ingenuity because they have so many of those kinds of challenges. They, for years, they've been doing things like, um, courses that are delivered by television. They actually roll a TV into a classroom <laughs> yeah. class because they don't have a calculus teacher. And mm. so they're kind of no strangers to the need to innovate. And um, one of the next rounds of work that we're going to be doing on district websites is looking at the rural districts and, and hearing about what they're doing. So I'm excited about that. You know, what's so crazy to me about the rural thing is just what you just said. We know that the kids are spread out. There's like, you know, I live in an area where not far from me, if you go and look at the distance between houses, it's not like a neighborhood where every house is right next door to each other. And, um, and I think about my brother-in-law, we moved here years ago from, from the Twin Cities, but it was the first time I encountered anybody where literally the broadband stopped before his house. So, you know, he was literally across the street from where the broadband stops and his internet at home had to be a MiFi, right? Had to, had to get a MiFi to, to do his, his work. And it, uh, you know, it says to me that even right now we're really starting to figure out how many kids in rural areas, um, are getting, not even that they're not, they don't have access. They have shoddy access, right? Like even when you do have access, it's not good. Yeah. Um, no, that's huge. I will also say that um, we we took a look at how many kids, how many families, households in New York City didn't have broadband access. Any guess? There were I would imagine. I would imagine that, how many? <laughs> I would imagine it wouldn't be a lot. A million households, according to one report that we looked at. This is a, a you know I don't know a report that was written maybe a year or two ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't because, wow. you know, the Wi-Fi wasn't in the city, obviously. It was just, you know, firewalled and pay services and, and all of that. So, um, and then, you know, access to devices in the, in, um, in the cities is tough. So um, there are challenges all around. Um, when I think about where we go from here and next steps, I really feel that we might be in a situation right now where it's basically okay. I could be real negative or pessimistic, but it's not perfect, but we're getting to as many kids as we can and districts are doing all that they can. And we're getting as many kids online. And what you said earlier is probably true in the fall. If we do have kids going back to school, we're going to have to do some really hardcore diagnostics on where kids are and then just go to work like just to make it happen but there are all these other prophecies that are being thrown around about i i see two prophecies one everybody will rush back to the thing that you know they'll they'll want the normal to go back to normal so bad that everybody will just rush back to that thing put their kids in there shut up go to work and and let that be that and then the other kind of scenario that people pitch is that all of reform world will have fa fallen from like, you know, manna from the sky. <laughs> um, like we'll have, you know, vouchers and school choice and uh, home, more homeschoolers and more parents who figured out that the, the damn bureaucracy was holding us back and all that type of stuff. Where are you landing on this? I think I know what the answer to this is going to be with you, but where are you landing on where you think... Um, we will have made progress in some of the traditional things of reform that we've been we've been pushing for. Like, will we make progress on the reform? Yes, no, Chris. I've never been a fan of this reform. <laughs> I know. Label. I mean, right. Reform has always been a coalition of people with a lot of different views about what's the right thing. Um, how how do you go about that thing? Um, it's a 
it's always been a big mix. And I think it continues to be a big mix of people. And I um, alternately, um, I've never understood who is really against reform. I mean, reform just means changing things up. Um, and tell we're serving every kid well, you know, who really wants to just stand pat, um, really? That said, um, I think- well, Wait a second, you don't know the answer to that question. Come on, Robin, <laughs> come on. I mean, okay, any so almost anything you propose, like in my time of looking at the politics of the superintendency of a school district and watching superintendents work with this group of teachers to on a committee to create something and this, this group of teachers come and sabotage it and get their unions or whatever. It just seems like it's a it's a political animal. There are stand patterns. Um, let's not kid ourselves. There are stand mm -hmm. patterns, but I'm saying who can defend that position? <laughs> really? Right, right, really? Right. So look around. So if you're against reform, what are you talking about? Um, mm -hmm. But reform is not, in my mind, reform is not um, about you know you know one set agenda. It's about a lot of different people who want to change things in a lot of different ways, and sometimes those of us who want to change things come together. Um, and sometimes we don't, sometimes we argue and, and fight as it should be. So, mm -hmm. so that said, um, yeah, I mean, you probably predicted this, but I think what we're going to be looking at is, uh, a lot of varied responses to what comes next. I think that'll happen within the education community with a lot of teachers saying, no, we cannot go back to that insanity that was like every kid marching forward on a set agenda every year, regardless of whether they were getting it or not. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. no, we can't go back to that. And a lot of parents saying, you know, hey, I finally figured out where my kid is. And, and I saw online that a suburban district next door was doing, you know, uh, much higher level math than my kid was getting. Why is that? So I think it's going to be um, a real mix of responses. Some parents just saying like, I couldn't, my kids have never been happier, more self-motivated and more grown up than when they were at home with me. And it mm -hmm. was a joy and I don't want to give that up. And some parents saying, uh, you know, um, there is no way that I could match what my incredibly experienced and talented teacher was able to offer my kid. So, uh, presuming that that's what you have <laughs> in your classroom. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, it's, it's varied. Some people yeah. will have that. Some people will have that. Some people won't have that. And then the question is, are we going to be honest when we come back together with all those different responses about what it all means? Yeah. And say, um, as Howard says, you know, the inequities were always there. Are we going to talk about that now? Mm -hmm. Actually, I love what you just said about reform being many different things. I've made the same crit criticism that you have. I resigned from from school reform a week ago. I wrote my resignation yeah, letter to, <laughs> to school reform like a week or so ago. Um, I call myself an abolitionist now. Um I love this idea because I've always said that what we call the school reform movement is actually a loose confederation of different people who are working together on different purposes at different points in time, right? But that's too long than saying school reform. It's like, it's too much. Um, it's the wrong branding. But if we took them one by one, some of the reform proposals that we, we maybe agree on or don't agree on, I think there might be different fortunes. Like, for instance, I believe that homeschooling might get a marginal bump. I might believe that there's a marginal bump in homeschooling. When it comes to distance learning and, and uh, virtual learning, I think it might get a small, not necessarily a bump, but a new appreciation amongst districts of how they could use it as a tool. But it, it's not going to be like an explosion of it. Um, I think standardized testing is lost. I think I think we're going to lose standardized testing and assessments is is the one casualty of all of this. When you think about the different proposals, are you seeing it kind of like I'm seeing it? Some of them are going to fare better than others, like school choice might fare better than charter schools versus virtual and all that stuff. Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, so let's let's think about them. Do you agree with me on that testing is in trouble? Might I mean, be in trouble. We know it. Absolutely. But yeah. You know, to be honest, right now, I think there is 
for once a real deep and meaningful natural constituency for something different. Mm. There are um, there are parents and teachers who really um, see that things could be better um, and want something better in an urgent way. Um, and so, and you know, are seeing the cracks in the traditional system. So when it comes to testing, I think um, the demand for real meaningful diagnostic testing next year will be very high from teachers and from parents. Um, and so um, that's something new. That's something that the reform community should be excited about and saying, like, mm-hmm. yeah, how can we shift to something that, you know, we all knew that standardized testing was a blunt instrument. It was you know, some information was better than no information, but it didn't give us everything we needed to know about individual kids. We can do better. So, you know, let's double down on that. Um, I think there'll be um, a natural constituency for um, recognizing that kids need different things. And so more kinds of choices is probably better. Um, Working sometimes in an online environment, sometimes off, um, taking one course somewhere and a different mm-hmm. course somewhere else. And so choice um, might have a new meaning for people and saying like, yeah, when kids are at, you know, fundamentally different levels and have fundam- fundamentally different needs in terms of when they need mental health services and, and all, um, we have to think really differently about what school is. Is it all offered inside a building? Mm-hmm. Maybe not actually. And, and so these kind of hybrid notions about education um, and where it takes place and um, how it's all patched together are going to be pretty interesting to watch. I actually have heard you say several times in this conversation that you think that there's a, a constituency of teachers that would be hungry to do something different and improve, make some forward movement. Also, you've mentioned some districts like Miami and others that are doing exactly that. Um And we've also talked about governors actually having a big role. I think where you just landed gives me an ambition. I don't know if it's the hope or dream or whatever, but it's an ambition that because governors are taking the lead on things like COVID and other things in ways that the, you know, the federal government is not. I wonder if this is an opportunity for like Inslee and Newsom and Cuomo and others also to convene the state's best and brightest around your question that you just had, what could education be in this new world? Because we're, we're having somewhat of a reset, but it's gonna take leadership. And if governors have nothing else, they have the convening power of yeah. their state to bring people together. Um, is that realistic? Is that something you could see happening? Um, an apolitical discussion amongst the best and the brightest of a state to, to redetermine what it could be? You said yes. Well, a actually, I'm asking, the wrong, I'm asking the wrong person, too, because you're at the Center for Reinventing Public Education. So your yeah. answer to that should be yes, right? I think we can do better. Politics is everywhere, right? And um, yeah, as it should be, I guess, to some degree. But um, yeah, I think it is I think it is possible. I think people have clarity right now about what's important um, and what has to take precedence. Unfortunately, the governors are pretty... Um, consumed with the health um, and economic issues. But what I'm trying to get um, into people's heads is um, medical issues, the economic issues and the education issues are intertwined. You cannot separate these things. And that's why governors need to step up and pull it all together. Because I think it was Governor Cuomo who said, look, um, uh, you know, uh, when if, if kids can't go back to school, that ties our economic hands. It keeps um, families from being able to go back to their jobs. So we have to, we have to think about them in tandem. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are some, um, some potentially very, very interesting conversations um, at the state level. I would like to see them opened up internationally a bit because mm-hmm. the world issue right now, we're all grappling with the, um, you know, the reopening question. Um, McKinsey is actually having a webinar about um, learning from other countries on the reopening, those who are ahead of us time-wise. Um, be really, really interesting to watch. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, I'm a researcher, so I just have to put in a plug <laughs> for um, researchers and, and evidence builders have to be at the table as well to inform those kinds of discussions. Well, I love that. I love that you came on today, Robin. I actually um, have a great deal of respect for you and the work that you you do. We haven't always agreed, but um, uh, I hope I've grown on you over time. You've definitely have grown on me over time. And and um, this is what I think about the situation that we're in. I think in normal times when everything is calm and stable, you need activists. You need people to throw the, the rocks to push people out of their stasis, out of their comfort and 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 poke uh, poke them when things are all crazy you need level-headed people um when things are going bananas and nuts and systems are falling and crashing you don't need crazy people at that time you actually need stable <laughs> well-thinking people which means this is your moment robin this is this is your moment right now you're like you're very needed right now so a lot of women are really um, stepping up into um, really interesting leadership leadership positions right now and um, and doing great stuff. So I don't pretend to be one of them, but um, but go women. No, I think you're one I, of them. I've always admired you, and uh, you know I liked you from the start. So I can't remember ever. Um, fundamentally disagreeing with you. Well, then that's the best thing ever. <laughs> that's the best thing ever. Well, I just love the work you do. Thank you, Robin, for coming on. We have allowed people, or not allowed, we have shown people what your Twitter handle is so that they can get in touch with you if there's anything that you said today that they would like to follow up on. Do you also want to give them any other ways or things you want to point them towards as far as resources through SERPI or anything? Do you have anything recent yeah. out that people could look at? Yeah, our website is crpe.org um, at the University of Washington. And um, so you can get all the updates to our research there. We have weekly updates coming out on our database, lots of new interesting stuff coming. And um, we're going to be um, uh, you know, putting information out on a regular basis, not just about our own research, but on other people's research on the education question. Mm -hmm. Robin Lake from the Center for Reinventing Public Education. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Be you healthy. Too.